Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm glad that you could be with us as we continue a series we began last week, uh, Sustainable Faith. This morning, uh, we're talking about the first of two disciplines, spiritual disciplines, reading our Bible and journey. We'll be looking at those together. Uh, so please join me in prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we're grateful that we can gather within these walls, listening for your voice, trusting and asking that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We pray now, Father that indeed you would open the scriptures in such a way that we might encounter uh, the living Christ and respond to that revelation, be transformed. So toward that end, we give you thanks in advance for what you'll do in our lives and through our lives as we follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I, I leave tomorrow uh, for Canada to teach for a week on Thetis Island. Uh, it's a little Bible school there, and so I'll be leaving Monday morning, back on Friday, here again on Sunday. But uh, uh, one of the, I, I learned a lesson up there that was profoundly spiritual, not in uh, Bible study, but in, uh, by fishing once there. Uh, how many have gone out fishing in Puget Sound in the room? Would you raise your hand if you've been out fishing in the Sound? So some of you have been. Uh, there's a place near Thetis Island where uh, I've fished in proximity to two islands. We drove the boat out there. I don't even know the terminology. If driving is what we do, I don't know. But anyway, we went out there, turned the engine off, uh, fished for a while, and I'm so intent on fishing that I don't notice that we're moving. But because of the tides, we are, we're moving a long way. And so after we were done fishing for a few minutes, I looked up and it was this stunning moment where the island that was my reference point is now a mile away. Does this make sense to you? And I was like this, what happened? How did the island move, right? And the, of course the island didn't move, but I moved. But I didn't, I didn't move under any human power. I just did what? It was a word read here. I just drifted, that's all I did. I just drifted away, right? And I wasn't even aware that I was drifting. And that's what's significant. Because Hebrews 2 says this, for this reason, because Christ is so important, we must pay, and then note this, we must pay much closer attention to Christ. Because watch this, if we don't pay close attention, this is a promise in Scripture, not one often quoted, but if we don't pay closer attention, we will what? drift away. If I don't pay close attention, I'll drift away. And this is the way life works in, you know, virtually every area. Uh, if you don't do any exercise, you'll drift into fatness, right? If you, if, you, if you don't eat any healthy food, you'll drift into bacon and Hershey bars coursing through your veins. If you put your money under your pillow, you'll drift into poverty. If you keep self-medicating with food and Porn and television, sleep, you'll drift into a meaningless, addictive life. If you ignore the care and feeding of your spirit, you'll drift away. If all I need to do to kill this redwood tree is nothing. In other words, if I don't give it water, if I don't expose it to the sunshine, it will drift into death. Everything requires care and feeding. That's the principle. Hence Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what? Christ, lest we what? Anybody? Drift away, right? Must pay much closer, uh, closer attention to Christ, lest we drift away. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we begin this series on sustainable faith. 
we see this kind of three-step pattern offered to us in the scriptures. We first of all see the danger of this poisonous drifting away. It happens all through the Bible. Second, we see that God has provided a precious antidote to prevent the drifting away. Third, we see that as we apply the antidote in our lives, it helps us realize our full potential. So, so poisonous drift, precious antidote, and, and, then, and then finally potential realized. Those three things. And begin here with me as we look at the poisonous, poisonous drift in the Bible, what I call a kind of a case study in soul stagnation. In other words, all through the Bible you see this, this drifting away. What we see under this category, poisonous drift, are different ways that God's people drift away. And there are, there are four of them. There's three listed in your bullet, and there's four that we're going to look at. The first one is this. We lose sight of what matters most. Remember, we must pay much closer attention. We have to really hone in here on Christ. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, you read about a group of people who are uh, doing at a level what God wants them to be doing, and yet under the surface, there's a problem. And so I'll just read it for you. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Remember, Joshua went into the promised land, was charged with conquering the land so that there could be this bastion of kind of hope and justice and peace in the world, this nation of Israel that would shine as light for others. That was, that was their calling. Joshua goes in. The people are conquering the land. And then this is what you read. Uh, Joshua dies, uh, Judges chapter 2, and then they buried Joshua. And then at verse 10, Judges 2.10, the whole generation were gathered unto their fathers, like Joshua's peers died, and then, listen, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which God had done for Israel. So the second, like there's a generation here that was, that was doing the work of God, and then they died, and then their children, it says, they did not know the Lord. So the parents are doing God's stuff. Does this make sense? And then the next generation down below grows up and they don't know the Lord. This is the very thing that Greg was talking about here with respect to children's ministry became at a level the core of the problem. There's a generation busy entering the promised land. They're busy. Look, there's battles to fight. There's fields to plant. There's fields to harvest. There's houses to build. There's families to raise. It's all good. It's all important. It's all defensible as a worthy investment of time. But none of it is adequate as a foundation on which to build a life. Doing God's stuff does not constitute Christianity, if that makes sense. And so here's a generation that is doing, quote, unquote, God's stuff, but this generation is so busy doing stuff for God, so busy defending God, that they neglected to teach the subsequent generation to what? Know God. So here you are working for God. You die, and your children don't know God. That's the danger here. Uh, we fail to pass on sometimes what is the absolutely most important thing? Because hear me, the most important pursuit in life isn't doing stuff for God. It's not the most important thing. It's not foundational. What is foundational is you having intimacy with Jesus and knowing God and loving God and receiving from God on an ongoing basis so that you can enter into the life for which you were created, a life of abundance, John 10, 10. I didn't come that you might... Do stuff for me. That's what God says through Christ. I didn't come that you could be busy for God. I came that you might know me, and in knowing me, you will have what? Abundant life, like the life for which you're created, a life of joy and hope and peace. But the foundation of that kind of life 
is intimacy with Christ. I didn't call you to survive. I called you to abundance. And the only way that happens is intimacy. It's the only way. So all of us are called to intimacy with Christ because that's the main thing. And then uh, enjoying this abundance, we're called to pass that abundance on to others, especially our family, so that we teach our children that the most important thing is knowing God. And then for us, the second most important thing is passing that on. And the maze and bustle that is church activity can become, in its worst iteration, a substitute for knowing God. Busy for God, but not knowing God, not having intimacy with Jesus. And so there's a question on the table here for all of us in the room, and it's this. What's your foundation? Like, what, what caused you to get up in the morning? Do you just want to survive? Do you just want to uh, uh, li- live a life of comfort? Do you, do you just want to do th- stuff for God? Like, what's your foundation? And what we're saying here is that God has told us that the most important thing is knowing God. And that out of that will come everything else. Jeremiah chapter 9, kind of my life verse Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the strong man boast in his strength. But if anyone will boast, let him boast of this. There's only one thing, quote, unquote, boast worthy, and that's this, that you understand and know, and the word know here is a word of intimacy, that you understand and know intimately your creator. That's it. So we're made for knowing, and Israel drifted away from the foundation, but what's so tricky is it still looked very religious on the, on the surface. Does that make sense? So we're in Bible studies. We're in meetings. We're doing things, but we've lost the foundation of knowing God. That's the beginning of the drift. And where that drift leads to very quickly is Judges chapter 1, uh, excuse me, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, this sense of autonomy. Because by the end of the book of Judges, it says this, every man did that which was what? Right in his own eyes. Because as soon as I decide that the main thing is anything other than knowing God, here's what happens. As soon as I neglect to pay close attention to the reference point, as soon as that happens, I will drift. I'll drift. And then when I drift, we come to this point, Judges 21, 25, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm done with God, I'm walking away. That very rarely happens. What happens is there's a very slow drift, a loss of the reference point. And so we must, all of us in the room, say, if I'm going to live the life for which I'm created, if I'm going to be the redwood tree that God made me to be, or the apple tree, or, 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 the, or the rose, or whatever you each are uniquely, this expression of life. If I'm to be that, I must make knowing Christ the main thing in my life. Otherwise, uh, if I lose the main thing, I'll drift away from the reference point, and then I'll do that which is right in my own eyes. And then when that, when that happens, I become shaped now, not by my own decision-making, but I Eventually, I become shaped by the culture, which leads me to kind of the third um, um, observation regarding drift. I lose the main thing, I become autonomous, and then I drift according to the winds of prevailing culture. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So as the history of Israel unfolds, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 to 20, is this story where Israel goes to Samuel, and this is what they say. Hey, Samuel, here's Samuel, front row, orange jacket, Samuel. Give us a king. Samuel says, you don't want a king. God's your king. Like, it doesn't get any better than that, right? God's your king, which means what? 
low taxes, you know, perfect justice, uh, you know, loving uh, authority figure. Yeah, 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 it's all good. Uh, no, no, we want a king. And Samuel says, why do you want a king? Well, all the, other, all the cool nations have kings. And so, you know, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. Yeah, listen, if you, look, you want a king? Here's what will happen you get a king. A, there'll be a draft. Your sons are going to be hauled off to fight of wars. B, you know, taxes are going to go up. C, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolute, absolutely. It's not in the Bible, but essentially, that's what Samuel is saying. Look, you're going to have good kings and bad kings, and when you have bad kings, watch out, right? So why do you want a king? Uh, God's your king. Don't ask for a king. Yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, just here, Samuel, we have one request. Give us a king. So, of course, you, if you know the story, you know what Samuel does. He goes to God, and he says, God, well, they want a king. And then God says, listen, give them a king. Because this is often the judgment that we get in our lives. You know what judgment is? It's God giving you what you actually want. <laughs> so what happens is they want a king, they get a king. But again, understand, why do they want a king? Here's why. Because they've drifted into the, the, the mold of prevailing culture. That's why they want a king. We want a king so that we can, literally, so that we can be what? And now I'm quoting the Bible, like the other nations. So my reference point is no longer God. My reference point is uh, what's fashionable. And you know what's fashionable? A king. Like, uh, theoc- not theocracy is not fashionable. No, no. Uh, Monarchy is fashionable. Give us a king. In Romans 12, we're told, it's a command. It says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Right? And so what's interesting here is both conformed and transformed are the passive voice. In other words, um, you don't form yourself. None of us do. We're, we're, either, we're either conformed to the prevailing winds of culture or we're transformed by Christ. But hear me, you will be formed by something other than your own kind of autonomous voice. One of the great kind of deceptions that prevails in this enlightenment age in which we live is this notion that we are the master of our own destiny. Like, I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the captain of my soul. I, you know, I run the show. I make the decisions. And I just sit objectively apart from culture, and I choose. No, you don't choose. None of us do. We're either formed by Christ or we're formed by the winds of culture. And we do choose which source by which we will be formed. <laughs> That's all our choice uh, is. But something will form us outside of our own autonomous intellect, right? And if it's not Christ, it will be the prevailing culture. This is a very important consideration right now because the prevailing culture in which we find ourselves is destroying people's capacity to live in hope and joy and peace and, and, and generosity. The news cycle is killing hope. True? I mean, I don't know if this is true for you, but in my world, uh, my, like my Facebook feed, which is supposed to be cat videos and, you know, flowers and pictures of sunrises and stuff like that, is increasingly this, this moment of despair as people are posting stuff that they saw on the news or, or you know, taking pictures of the Seattle Times and saying, I can't believe what's happening. This is unbelievable. You know, it's, 
oh, and there's this anger, and there's this sense of hopelessness, and there's this sense of despair, and, 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 and this, is po- this is actually poisoning us, and it reminds me uh, of in the Lord of the Rings, if you know this King Denethor, do you know this? And he's, he's like sitting on his throne, and he's become this old kind of hunched over guy, and the reason he's old and hunched over is because he's believing what he what he considers to be reality, that there are these forces of evil out here over which he has no control, and they're coming, and they're coming, and they're coming, and they're going to suck the life out of me, and they're going to steal our freedom, and all is lost. Like, and he's just believing the news cycle, Denethor. And then, of course, if you know the story, you know, Gandalf walks into the castle, and he says, it is not hopeless, I'm paraphrasing. But then you watch this guy go from like hunched over to like sitting up to confident because he's filled with an entirely different perspective. I'm just going to say we desperately need this today because you and I are called in the midst of despair to be people of hope. We're called in the midst of greed to be people of generosity. We're called in the midst of oppression to be people of justice. Not just called, invited. This, like, this is what it means to be a redwood tree. This is the life for which you're created, but you will never attain that life to the extent that you allow yourself to be uh, determined and formed and shaped by the news cycle and, and, and the economic uh, cycle and the ups and downs and the political realities. No, that's not the most fundamental truth. The most fundamental truth is this. Christ is risen from the dead and a new king is ruling and a new kingdom is coming. Live as people of hope. Declare the hope. Embody the hope. Be the hope. That's your calling. Amen or something, right? Like that is your calling. And so when we think of being conformed to the world, we often think of, you know, sleeping around and, and getting drunk and these terrible addictions. But understand, cynicism, negativity, Negativity, disengagement, those are equally what it means to be conformed to the world. And finally, kind of the worst thing in some ways is we run the risk of becoming religious. Like at the end of it, when you fast forward to John 5.39, you find Jesus saying this, hey, speaking to the religious leaders, you guys do search the scriptures. That sounds good on the surface because remember over here, we must pay much closer attention to it lest we drift away, the it here is actually the him, Christ. We must pay much closer attention to Christ lest we drift away. Now, of course, the means of paying close attention to Christ is by being in the scriptures, true? So here's, here's Jesus, and he says, look, you guys search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That sounds commendable, but the, the, here's the problem. He says, you search the scriptures, and it's the scriptures that point to me Yet, he says, you are unwilling to what? Come to me. So you become kind of the worst of all worlds, like Bible students who know the text but are unwilling actually to know the Christ of whom the text speaks. And that's kind of the greatest deception of all. Uh, It's a deception that would say, yeah, gosh, we know our Bibles and that's great, but... (laughs) Uh, we end up becoming like very ugly in our expression of Christianity. Like we end up judging other people and we're going to talk about this in a moment but understand here, 
the, the end goal isn't that you know your Bible. It's, not, it's never been the end goal. It's kind of the, the, the greatest danger of Bible memorization programs. Listen, it's great to memorize the Bible. It's also dangerous to think that memorizing the Bible transforms you. The Bible doesn't transform you. The, the book doesn't transform you. The text doesn't transform you. Christ transforms you. And if I know the Bible, but I'm, un, I'm unwilling to allow Christ to shape me, then I become the worst of all worlds religious, right? And so we want to avoid that as well. This is the pattern of drift. It kind of begins with this losing sight of the foundation that I'm knowing Christ, I'm being shaped by Christ. Then I become autonomous. In autonomy, I'm, I'm carried by the winds of culture. I drift away. And then uh, within our own circle, some of us, then we become religious. But in our religion, what we're really doing is we're making a new Jesus, a Jesus that conforms to the cultural mores of wherever we have to live. A Jesus who sanctions slavery, a Jesus who sanctions colonialism, a, a, a Jesus who sanctions violence, who, who sanctions upward mobility and disregard for the poor. And I'm just here to tell you, this is not Jesus, right? I must be conformed not to the cultural Jesus, the American Jesus. I must be conformed to Jesus, the risen Jesus. And that requires for me a renewing of my mind and a relentless commitment to swim upstream against culture and be shaped by Christ, not the winds of culture, quote-unquote, in Jesus' name. So, that, so there's a drift going on. All of us are at risk of drifting, and all you have to do to drift, as we saw at the beginning, all you need to do to drift is do nothing. And the only way, then, the antidote, we must pay much closer attention. Attention to what? The text. Because the text is the revelation of Christ. And so if I'm to pay close attention to Christ, I must pay attention to the text. Because the text is the revelation of Christ. Christ is the living word, but Christ is revealing himself to us through the what? Through the written word. So Christ is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. You're changed by the word, but the word by which you're changed is Christ. But how does Christ reveal himself to me? Through the written word. So the written word becomes the, the revelation of the living word. Uh, uh, psalm 119 is, is this long psalm in uh, the, the poetic psalms. And it's all really about the Bible in many ways. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Remember, we've got this drift paradigm this morning. How can, I, how can a young man keep his way pure? Like, how can I stay over here being shaped by Christ? Here's how. By, by keeping my way, the way that I'm living my life, by keeping my way according to your word. With all my heart, I've sought you. There's that paying much closer attention. With all my heart, I've sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word I've treasured in my heart. Why? so that I might not sin against you. In other words, here's close attention to the word. And of course, we know that the reason to pay close attention to the word is because the word is profitable. It says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, that all scripture is given to us by God and is profitable uh, for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so that we may be equipped and adequate for every good work uh, that we might live into the calling that God has for us. So God has spoken these words so that we might encounter Christ through these words and then learn something uh, about Christ through these words 
And so these words then help us. How? Well, they refute errors. So when I begin to drift away, boom, they call me back. They correct something that's out of alignment. This is like my spiritual chiropractor, right? Like to the extent that there's, like I'm overemphasizing this or that, the scriptures call me back into alignment. They provide instruction, like a training manual. Uh, God is the, is the maker of us, and this is the owner's manual in a sense. And so all of this is with a goal of moving us toward wholeness and completion, of moving us toward the life for which we're created, and the life for which we're created is a life that displays the Christ who lives in us. So God, is, God has his desire to reveal God's life in us 24-7 so that we see nothing less than the character of Christ in our daily activities. And, and, and so the precious antidote here, the way that we move back and, and arrest the drift that is inevitable if we do nothing, the way back, pay attention to Christ in the scriptures. That's the deal. Uh, and, and so I'm just going to give you a moment here of kind of warning, I guess, or I'm going to just muse for a moment on why it's important that we understand that God gave us the Bible so that we might look like Christ. The reason that we must understand that as God's motive is because Christianity argues about the Bible. And in my lifetime, there's, there's a big movement in the 70s. Some of you may remember it called the Battle for the Bible. Do you remember this? And it was a big debate that really was kind of the culmination of a 40-year earlier debate uh, about the Bible. And this battle for the Bible is regarding whether the Bible is, and now there's these words that create the battle, is the Bible objective? Is the Bible inerrant? Is the Bible infallible? Uh, and so there's a debate about the Bible, and the debate is using words objective, inerrant, infallible, absolute, the debate is using these words that the Bible doesn't use. Does this make sense? Like the, the, okay, the debate's about inerrancy, except the Bible doesn't talk about inerrancy. And so this major divide has happened in American Christianity because there are churches arguing about uh, the nature of the Bible. In other words, uh, people on the left don't want to use these words, and they often end up displaying compassion without taking the words of the Bible seriously. People on the right want to use these words, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and then what they end up doing is they, they, they take the, the Bible so seriously that sometimes they take it literally, and then it's used to justify slavery and, and colonialism and all these things. And so, so what you have here is um, one group with a, kind of a low view of Scripture and a drift away from Christ, and another with this kind of militantly high view of Scripture and a drift away from Christ. So that the result of the argument is nobody looks like Jesus. And so let me make a couple of applications here. Number one, know this, at Bethany, we don't argue about the Bible. We just don't argue about the Bible. Because here's the deal. I don't talk about inerrancy uh, or, uh, you know, objective truth or absolute. This is what I say. God gave us the Bible so that we can move toward Christ 
and realize the transformation that heals us, delivers us, equips us to bless and serve others. In other words, why did God, the, the question isn't what is the Bible, the question is why did God give us the Bible? And the point of God giving us the Bible so that we could look like Jesus. That's the whole reason God gave us the Bible. And if you want to argue about uh, whether, whether uh, this particular phrase is in the original manuscript or not, go argue. I don't care. But understand, nothing hinges on that. Does this, does this make sense to you? So um, we're, not argue, we're not here to argue with the Bible because when we argue with the Bible, we end up with these debates and then, you know, we're lobbing grenades and calling into uh, question another person's salvation, not because of their view of Jesus, but because of their view of the Bible. Don't do that. Uh, and then here's the, this is, here's the good news. If there's this kind of tide that is creating a cultural drift, the way back, I love this, the way back requires you to read the Bible. It's, now, hear me, this is simple. This is simple. You just have to open your Bible, look for Jesus in the Bible, obey, and you'll begin to move back. Like you arrest the cultural drift. So here's what's beautiful. In this avalanche of movement away from Christ, all it takes for you to move back is a little bit of Bible. Does that make sense? Big avalanche, little bit of Bible. That's all it takes. Little bit of Bible. It's like running, right? Like there's this there are people in the world who eat bacon every morning for breakfast and they eat Hershey bars for dinner and they're like, there's this, there's this terrible drift toward cholesterol and then just a lit, like a little bit of running, th three miles, three times a week, slowly, and the blood's good. Does this make sense? Just a little bit arrests this avalanche of movement in the wrong direction. And so how do you move toward the life for which you're created, a life of abundance and hope and joy and peace? How do you move there? A little bit of revelation, that's how. A little bit. Which leads us to the last thing, the potential realized. Like, the next step for all of us to arrest the drift is this. I, I must pay close attention. So how do I pay close attention? I open this. I read, I respond, and then when I respond, watch this, the response will lead me on a journey. In other words, all through the Bible, when God has revealed himself to us, he invites us to take a next step every time. Next step, take a step. And a step implies what? Journey. God speaks to Abraham, move. God speaks to David, move. God speaks to Moses, move. God speaks to Paul on the Damascus Road, move. Move, move, move. Sometimes literally, geographically, physically, <laughs> sometimes. So, sometimes emotionally, spiritually, sometimes. So, sometimes move away from a habit. Sometimes move away from bitterness. But here's the deal. If God is revealing himself, our calling is to move. So remember this. All transformation is response to revelation and so if I'm to be transformed, all I need to do is present myself to revelation and God will be transforming me. 
And that's very good news. But as I receive the revelation then, hear me, I must respond. I must respond. Don't be, James uh, chapter 1 says, don't be people who, who receive the revelation and don't respond. Don't be that person. Uh, but also don't be people who, who, who don't receive the revelation. Because it all starts with the revelation. Um, in uh, 1942 in France, there was a group of young people, not like elders, young people, who presented a letter to a French official who had kind of swallowed the Nazi Kool-Aid, they're occupied. He comes up onto this kind of high plateau up here in the mountains uh, in the south of France, and it's to be a celebration of the one-year anniversary of the uh, occupation of France, one-year anniversary. So this guy comes in, he's, there's, a, there's supposed to be a big parade, there's a parade, nobody shows up for the parade in the whole village, it's just an empty parade. And at the end of the parade, there's to be this kind of public ceremony on the bandstand, and so here, if you can picture this official, this French official who's implementing German policy, he, he stands up on the bandstand, he gives a speech, the whole village is there for that. And then when he finishes his speech, the mayor comes up and he says, uh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, the young people of our village would like to make a presentation to you. They have something for you. Oh, I'd love to receive it. The young people, the youth, the high school kids, they hand a letter to this guy and they read it. This is the letter. Listen to this. Dear so-and-so, <laughs> we've learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris where the French police, on the orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes 12,000 Jewish families and, and, and are now holding them in the winter velodrome. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany. The children were torn from their mothers and underwent the same fate as their husbands. We're afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone where we live. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us in our village, a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It's contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born under another religion, received the order to let themselves be deported or examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try as best as we could to help them. Mr. Mayor, we have Jews. You're not getting them. They read it aloud and walked off the stage. Let me ask you a question. You know, where did they get that courage in La Chambon? I'll tell you where. 300 years of Bible reading up in that remote plateau. Why? Well, because that's where those who were persecuted for reading the Bible ran. If you know French history, you know the Huguenots were persecuted. But where did the survivors go? La Chambon. If you know French history, you know the Darbyists, like what are today the Plymouth Brethren, some of whom are here in our community at Bethany. Like, where did, the, where did the persecuted brethren go? Lush and bon. So for 300 years, on this plateau, the people were saturated with Bible studies. And it was a place of escape, and people were shaped by the Bible. So that when 1942 showed up, who had the courage? Who had the courage? La Chambon. 3,000 Jews sheltered over the course of the war. 
grandchildren alive today because of their courage. Listen, the point of Bible study isn't so you can memorize Isaiah. Who cares? The point of, the point of Bible study is so that you can be freed from your addictions, reconciled to your parents, reconciled to your children, uh, intimate in your marriage, truth, uh, truthful, humble, honest, generous, just, and by the way, courageous. So that when the world implodes, you're still light. Why? Because you weren't shaped by the world. You're shaped by Christ. Like, how does that happen? My wife worked at Seattle Pacific for a number of years, and she was on the kind of emergency committee. And so every once in a while, if you're a student at Seattle Pacific, you know, they have these drills, lockdown drills. And the, they're a pain. If, you, if you're a student, you know that. There was one just this last week. But the admin says, hey, you know what you're doing? You're developing muscle memory so that when the real deal comes, you're ready. And the real deal came. You know that a couple years ago. Shotgun, one student dead. But everyone was ready. Why? Muscle memory. You know what? Taking the Bible seriously, here's what you're doing. Muscle memory. That's what you're doing. And, 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 and so if you're here this morning and you're like this, yeah, Bible, I've tried it and I imploded. I'll make sure that you don't leave here without resources. So we have a little thing here if we can put it up. A little bit of study goes a long way. So if you would, if you text the word study to 64600, that'll take you to a link where I've given you several Bible study resources, like half a dozen Bible study resources. So all I'm saying is a little study goes a long way. So uh, the book my wife uses for her devotions, a book that I use for my devotions, a website where you get a little Bible sent to you as an email every morning. And most of these take less than 10 minutes. Are you kidding me? If you don't have that time to encounter Scripture so that you avoid the drift, then you need to change the way you're living because this is how we're shaped, muscle memory. It comes this way. Taking the Bible seriously as your primary source of encountering Christ is your calling. That's why we call it, what, a spiritual discipline. The first one, foundational to everything that follows, is this, because we're transformed by revelation. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you that we have these moments now and pray that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd give us hearts to respond. And I'm just going to ask, while everybody's eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, um, if, if you're committed already to daily Bible reading... Would you just raise your hand? Nobody has to know. If you're already doing it, great. And then I'm going to ask also, uh, if you're not committed but you'd like to make that kind of a commitment this morning and you say, I want to change, would you raise your hand? I need to start reading the Bible every day. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pray for those people right now. Father, those who have raised their hands, who are already studying, who want to study in the future, I pray that these resources would help, but I pray that uh, as they open the scriptures, they would encounter you and enjoy the journey that you have for them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.